0: Please open your Bibles to the book of James. And as you turn there, I'll give you an idea of what we're going to do this morning and in the next few weeks. We have concluded the last section of James two weeks ago, verses chapter 5, 19 through 20. And then we did an extended look at the issue of correction and, and dealing with wayward brothers and sisters. This morning, we're going to do a summary and review of James. When we are going to read the entire epistle, take about 12 minutes or so, and then we will celebrate a time of communion. Um, next Sunday, this Sunday, this coming Sunday, we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll be setting aside to consider an approach to the, uh, to the resurrection, to, to Resurrection Sunday. We'll have our Good Friday service. We'll have our Resurrection Sunday service. And then, God willing, we'll spend a few weeks in the book of Habakkuk, and then, after about four to six weeks in the back, I hope, I plan to begin a study of John's gospel. So that's the plan for this morning. You'll find the notes in the bulletin, or if you're joining us online on our website, I'd like to begin by just reading the, the opening greeting of James. We'll have a word of prayer. James, a servant of God and with the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Lord God, as we look back over the the past year of our study of this epistle, I pray that you would um, give us clarity and insight that we might see not just the individual passages and verses, but see how the book flows, how your concern for your church is ministered to us through through James, and that we might um, see ourselves rightly in a mirror and be changed, and that leaving here this morning, we might have a better grasp of this book. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our 33rd week in the Epistle of James. We've averaged about three and a half verses a week. And I hope, after spending most of the last year here, that all of us, as we leave, can go back and read and reread and see the overarching themes and point of James. When we began our study, we began with a review, and we will end with a review. I've altered my thesis statement for what I think the central point of James is slightly, although it's pretty similar. And your your blanks and your box at the top, if you had to ask me in one sentence, what is the message of James? What is the primary point of James? It is this, that saving faith works and perseveres through life's trials by relying on God's wisdom. Saving faith works and perseveres, through life's trials, by relying on God's wisdom. James is writing to a church dispersed by persecution. Trials are in the forefront of their experience. It's a mostly Jewish church. And he wants to insist there's a connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, between what you say you believe and what you confess with your mouth and what you do with your life. Faith works. His biggest doctrinal section in chapter 2 is about exposing the futility of trying to separate a faith, quote-unquote, that doesn't affect life and living. James is incredibly practical. He's also concerned about perseverance. We'll see that when we look through the book, but you can see clearly in in chapter 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. His opening exhortation about why we should count it joy when we encounter trials. Because they produce perseverance. And perseverance produces all other manner of godly fruit in our lives. Faith persevering, enduring, responding rightly. Through life's trials by relying on God's wisdom. Um, there's, a, there's a big dichotomy in James between the wisdom of the world. Earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. And God's wisdom, they bear very different fruit. And James is commending us to God's wisdom. So that's the overarching thesis. He's writing to the scattered churches. He's not writing to a particular church. But to the Christians, all scattered from Jerusalem. Insisting that their faith, its true saving faith, works. Will work itself out. And persevere through life's trials by relying on God's wisdom. That's that's my thesis for the book. So let me point to some key features. We've seen that James is intensely practical and direct. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't go off on long extended treaties on topics. It's it's all about living here and now. Other writers will do that. The author of Hebrews will spend the better part of a chapter explaining how Jesus' high priesthood is similar to Melchizedek's high priesthood. That is good. That is profitable. That's not the way James writes. James is to the point. It's a book with little doctrinal development about Christ. This is one of the things that can challenge some people. Jesus is only mentioned by name twice in the epistle of James. In the greeting I just read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by name in chapter 2, verse 1, show, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's it for overt references. It's possible James is speaking of the Lord when he talks about the Lord is at hand. He might be the Lord Jesus Christ. I tend to think that. But only two direct namings of Jesus. No mention of the cross. The resurrection. Central themes in Paul's writings are not here. Uh, This is one of the reasons why Martin Luther struggled with this epistle. Calling it an epistle of straw. I think he missed the mark on that point. But admittedly, little doctrinal development. The only... Extended doctrinal development is the doctrine that faith must be accompanied by works to be legitimate. In chapter two, um, James's central point is in the. Um, it's in my summary statement is that our actions reveal our true beliefs. Our actions reveal our true beliefs. When I first taught this book to the junior high and senior high fifteen years ago. I tell them that we always, 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 always live out our beliefs in any given moment. That what I'm believing right now is seen by what I do right now. That that obedience is lived out faith and sin is lived out unbelief. Um, and so James drives that connection home and he's concerned in particular about the danger of self-deception. James is concerned that the church scattered, being persecuted... Might think their spiritual condition is one thing when the reality might be another. Let me, let me show this to you. Look at um, 1 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's concerned that they might be deceived on the nature of God and his good gifts. Jump down to 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, look at this next section. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James is concerned that a hearing that doesn't result in obedience and works can lead to self-deception. So you see James' concern that if we enable a separation between what we say we believe and what we sing and what we pray and what we confess and what we do, there's the very real possibility of self-deception. He goes on to highlight that again in verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So this person, because he's deceived, isn't aware that his religion is worthless. He thinks he's got valuable religion. He thinks he's got the real deal. And James says, if he, can't, if he is not bridling his tongue, it's worthless. He's deceived himself. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So that's one of the key features of James. Intensely practical. And concerned with the potential of self-deception that arises when we make a rift and a split between what we say we believe and what we do and how we live our lives. And so James is really trying to glue those two back together and insist that the church glue those two back together. Um, Thirdly, there are more imperatives verse by verse than any other New Testament or actually any other book in the Bible. James is dominated by imperatives, commands. Again, highlighting its practical nature. Um, so it's intensely practical and direct. The second point, B here, is James relies heavily on the oral teachings of Jesus. Given the overt absence of Jesus in this epistle, only being named twice, um, you might ask, well, then why, why was this received by the church? And I would say because Jesus is all over this epistle. It's clear, one commentator makes 40 connections, where James is teaching, reteaching, applying Jesus' public teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, most clearly. As as the topics Jesus hits, James hits. We saw in chapter 5, if you turn over, where there's almost a direct quotation, word for word, of what Jesus taught. Now, I say Jesus' oral tradition, because in our best placing of the, the writing of this epistle, the Gospels haven't been written yet. James almost certainly wrote first. It's possible Galatians was written first, but most likely James. And the Gospels come a little later. The Gospels come as that first generation of Christians who witnessed and heard Jesus teach begins to die. And somebody thinks, we we better write this down. James is writing to people who've heard that and applying that. But we see in chapter 5.12 above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you were to compare that with Matthew 5.34 it's almost word for word. And so James's older half brother Jesus is all over this letter in his teaching. In his teaching. Even if the doctrines of who Jesus is are not expounded. His ethical teaching is repeated. Um, relies heavily on the oral teaching of Jesus. Most notably, I think, is James's. he adopts Leviticus 19, what we looked at last week. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 7 to 18, as the royal law. Go to chapter 2. Now, this is, this is really notable. Um, I'm not aware of any treatment in the Old Testament That highlights Leviticus 19 as some central command. I'm not aware of the later prophets and the minor prophets doing that. Taking Leviticus 19 and and calling it the second greatest commandment. um, Is something King Jesus did in his ethic. For his disciples. And we're so used to that now. We need to realize that prior to Jesus. Making that the center of his horizontal ethic. It it didn't have that type of um, prestige. The ten commandments are what people would go to. And so, in chapter 2, verse 8, you can see that connection. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why, why does he call it royal? I believe because King Jesus clearly made this the second greatest commandment in his ethic and his law and in his understanding of how Christians need to live. And so, there's another evidence of Jesus' Teaching present in James. Where does James get Leviticus 19 as the royal, the kingly law from King Jesus? And and I think his followers, his readers would understand that as well. He adopts Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 as the royal law, and he applies point to the Sermon on the Mount repeatedly, repeatedly. So those are some key features of James. He's direct. He's is to the point. He, he's all about telling us how to live our lives, exhorting us, giving us commands. He is applying the teaching of Jesus again and again and again and again. Um, point two, James's exhortation is directed to three main spheres. So as we're considering saving faith is must work itself out and persevere through life's trials by relying on God's wisdom. James is interested and concerned in faith working itself out in three distinct spheres. If you turn back to the end of chapter 1, almost as a table of contents for the book, I think he gives us those three spheres right here. 1, 26, and 27. This is as close to a key passage in the epistle as I can find. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so your three blanks, James is concerned with our use of the tongue our relationship to wealth, and our relationship to the world. And he gives us those three tests right there. He doesn't want us to be self-deceived. He wants us to have true and undefiled religion. And he's going to measure true and undefiled religion along the axis of our use of the tongue, our relationship to wealth and money and the poor, and our relationship to the world. And as we read through the epistle the end of this message, I think you can see him go to those topics again and again and again. But let's consider a few of them. Wealth. James is aware that both riches and poverty have their own temptations. Probably most clearly, just in the opening um, verses, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He's aware that for the lowly, the poor brother, discouragement being downtrodden, that, that might be a temptation and a trial for him. He exhorts him. Remember your high calling. That's not what he says the rich ought to focus on. The, the danger of the rich is to think they're too much. That they're too great. They're too powerful. Remember, he says, you're like a grass. It's here for a day and disappears. So, so James is giving counsel both to the poor and the rich. You're aware that they have distinct temptations and trials. Um. Wow! Well, I just jumped down to the wealth. Sorry, our use of the tongue. Good grief. Okay, um, our use of the tongue. I just that's just a taster teaser of of wealth coming up next. But okay, our use of the tongue. Um, James, if I had to make two points from James about our use of the tongue, is that the words we speak are truly significant. The words we speak are truly significant, and it, from James's point of view, they reveal our hearts. They reveal our theology. He doesn't just address blaming God for your temptations and your trials. He addresses saying that publicly, the speaking of it. Look at 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Look at 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Slow to speak. Chapter 3 is... All about the tongue and its power and its potential for evil. Look over in chapter, 14, chapter 4. The words we speak are significant. He, he has a section devoted to slander and speaking evil of each other. 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law. And then look down at 4.13. I mean he's gonna he's gonna expose a heart of pride and boasting simply from a what would seem innocuous statement. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Something as simple as that reveals pride, self-assurance, confidence, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So something as small as, oh, I'm just, next year, we're going to go over there. James says, ooh, ooh, be careful how you speak. It reveals your pride and self-confidence. The words you speak are truly significant. He addresses oaths in five, and he addresses prayer and praise and confession at the end of the epistle. Um, Probably most notably, the center point of his teaching on the tongue in chapter 3, 1 to 18, is that the tongue is disproportionately powerful. He compares it to a rudder that directs a ship, a bit in a horse's mouth, a, a small spark that sets an entire forest ablaze. So, James is very concerned with how we use our tongues and the words we speak and what it reveals about our hearts. And if we are not bridling our tongues, we deceive ourselves and our faith is worthless, our religion, worthless. That's a bold statement because this is one of James's main areas of concern. The tongue, the words we speak, being significant and disproportionately powerful. Now we come to our relationship to wealth, the second axis to look upon. And James is aware that both riches and poverty have their own temptations. Now, he tends to deal more with the the rich and their temptations, but we also see positively his treatment of the poor. Most of the church is poor. We get that from chapter 2, where he says, is it not the rich who bring you into courts, my brothers? He expects the people he's writing to are predominantly made up of those who would be poor. And this makes sense with the dispersion. A great persecution arose in Acts 8, and presumably the Jews, the Christians, had to leave, not having a chance to gather all their property. We know that in society, they were frequently looked down upon. There are some believers who have some means, as we saw in chapter 4. With, we're going to go here or there, but mostly he's dealing with poor Christians. But surprisingly, it's precisely the poor Christians who he considers in danger of showing partiality to the rich. Look at chapter 2. What's his concern with how we deal with wealth? Well, the danger is that we honor it too much. That those who have it we think too highly of. We pursue it too much. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? Something as simple as showing a good seat to a wealthy patron reveals evil inward judgments. Again, this is James tracking back through behavior and our actions, what we really believe, what we really think in our hearts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. So if we curry favor with the wealthy, we're, we're guilty of everything James is saying here. If we run after it, if we value it, or the other danger being we, we despise those without it. Why are orphans and widows listed? Well, because they're the most helpless and they're the least capable of repaying. If you want to spend time with people, who get, you get a return for your investment. As it were, Jesus addresses this. You invite people over to your house, and then they turn around. They invite you over to their house, and everyone gets repaid. But especially in the New Testament times, orphans and widows, any time you spent with them, you are unlikely to get anything in this life. But that's true an undefiled religion. Caring for the other apart from what I get out of it. Caring for the other apart from any repayment I might receive here and now. Just like Jesus came and, I mean, we're the ultimate widows and orphans, that Jesus came and lived for and died for and rose again for. And so our relationship to wealth shows the genuineness of our faith. Who do we honor? Who do we give preference to? Whose favor do we want? Who do we give the good seats to? And finally, our relationship to the world, our relationship to the world. And this ties in most notably with James's emphasis on wisdom. Some have called the book of James the, the, the Proverbs of the New Testament. I might be going a bit far, but his emphasis on wisdom and the clear contrast set up between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God is a central theme of this book. Um, we, we, wisdom is first introduced in, in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But then jump over to chapter 3. There's a wisdom that comes from God freely, generously to all who ask in faith. James does know of another wisdom. And his concern is that the would-be teachers in the churches scattered have subscribed not to God's wisdom, but to the world's wisdom. And again, James is so practical, you can tell the wisdom that's been adopted by the fruit it bears, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then seamlessly moving into chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? With The same fruit that we just saw the, the earthly, natural, demonic wisdom yields... Is it not this, your passions, that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's a, there's a wisdom that the world says how to get what's yours. And you strive and contend for it. You fight for it. Well, look how James peels back the layers to show what's going on in the heart. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So what has he just said? He said there's, there's two sources of wisdom you can choose from. There's the wisdom from above, and there's the wisdom from below, which is earthly, worldly, demonic. The, the, the hallmarks of the wisdom from below are the contention, the strife, the jealousy, the selfish ambition, the conflict in the body that's produced by it. And when people embrace that type of wisdom, and when people engage in that type of conflict and fighting, they evidence that really they're friends with the world. And that's James' concern, that the, the worldview, the values of the world, would creep into the church. Here's your blanks. Worldly wisdom breeds conflict, envy, and strife. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. When we looked through this passage, I said it's the anti-gospel. Because the gospel is the promise that you and I can have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, anyone who is friends with the world doesn't have peace with God, but has enmity, conflict, strife. You begin to see why James would be concerned about that. So James is writing to the scattered church, To encourage them to persevere. To encourage them to engage their trials rightly. To to recognize the necessity that their faith that they confess and profess. Must evidence itself in works. Not that they're saved by those works. But that their claim to faith is vindicated. Proven genuine by those works. And they must persevere. That's why he ends the letter with a call to, to seek those who might be wandering away. Through life's trials. And that they will only manage to do so if they rely on God's wisdom and not the world's wisdom. So now turn with me to James chapter 1, and we'll end our time by reading the epistle. And as we do, I hope that our time that we've spent here, you will remember and see and understand what James is saying, that we might not look at ourselves in the mirror and walk away, but that we would read this and do what we see. We'll read James all the time of communion. Get my pages set up here. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but... For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, whichever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields. Which you kept back by fraud. Are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, And your no be know so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another. will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord God, um, how richly you have given us your word. How blessed we are to have so much of your mind revealed to us. Lord, I pray that we would hear James's exhortation, that we would let your word shine light on who we really are, what we truly believe, what we are, truly about, and that seeing we would commit to act, to put into practice what you say, that we would not forget what our natural face looks like in the mirror, but that we would be doers of your word, blessed in the doing. And I pray that we would persevere through life's trials, that we may obtain the crown of life, which you have promised to those who love you, that we would shepherd and guard ourselves if any wanders, that we would exhort each other, Encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching, that we would be patient and steadfast, looking to your return for our vindication and our reward. In Jesus' name, amen.